Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions. We are the developers of the Ultimate Patient Experience Blueprint. If you want to learn more about that, you can head on over to rehabupracticesolutions.com slash UPE. Learn more about us there. Alrighty, what do we got on the docket this week? This is one of those interviews that I know I say this a lot. I'm excited to bring it to you. And it's unique in the fact that, well, we've got two guests on this time, uh, which is unique in and of itself. But this uh, organization, it's called Expanded Practice, and it's founded by Danielle Stroller, who's a physical therapist who specializes in neurorehabilitation, and then Maribeth Quinn, who is actually a mother of a stroke survivor. And what makes their organization unique is that they are a mentorship and education company that assists both caregivers, but a lot of the work that they do is mentoring and providing consultation to physical therapists and rehab clinicians who might be working with somebody who has had a CVA or some sort of neurological um, incident. But what really struck me about them, not only is their story incredible, which I'm not going to give away a whole lot, but these two met, Danielle and Maribeth met because Danielle actually treated Maribeth's daughter after she had a stroke at a very young age. Um, I think she was 18 or 19 when she had the stroke. So obviously that in and of itself is a huge... um, a huge curveball that life throws at you. And Danielle talks a little bit about treating Sophie, which is Mary Beth's daughter, and how that kind of shifted some of her perspective on the way she treated individuals that have had CVAs and neurological incidences. And Mary Beth talks a lot about the growing experience, both on her side as a caregiver and a mother, and then seeing that transformation in her daughter, which was pretty incredible. So listen to the to the whole episode and you're going to be blown away by the story there. But what is very interesting about these two women is that their their organization really takes a a biopsychosocial approach to healthcare, to mentorship, to guiding clinicians in expanding their practice so that, that they're not just checking boxes on uh, on an eval sheet or they're not just ticking outcome measures so they have something to be reimbursed with, but that they're tapping into, call it positive psychology, call it a holistic approach to healthcare, but they're really leveraging the human side, the relational side of the treatment process to achieve better outcomes with their clients. And then they're helping other clinicians kind of tap into that as well through their mentorship program. I know we have talked about it a lot on the show over the past several episodes about the importance of 
interpersonal skills, being able to master interpersonal interactions, communication, all of the stuff that is quote unquote, the soft skills in reality are the hard skills for healthcare. The research bears this out again and again that competence as a clinician is really what you need in order to affect change in your patient's life so long as you have mastered or you have a strong understanding of interpersonal skills and communication and interpersonal interactions. If you pair two clinicians up against each other and one is very technically proficient, has all the certifications, has all of the skills, so to speak, but they lack on the personal or the human side of things, they're going to experience and deliver outcomes that might be comparable or sometimes less than another clinician who's basically proficient and competent but has mastered patient relationships and engagement and understanding and empathy and being able to tap into those internal and intrinsic motivations on the patient's side in order to make them um, and encourage them to make those difficult lifestyle changes, those behavioral changes that we know our patients would benefit so greatly from if they only did X, Y, Z, right? Being able to achieve those changes in your patient's life requires using those quote unquote, those soft skills, those relational skills. So anyways, we talked a lot in this episode about everything from positive psychology to behavioral change and mindset. Hopefully y'all walk away from this episode with some real practical insights and strategies you can employ in your own practice uh, if you're a clinician or that you can begin to have your clinicians think about and implement and employ if you run a clinic or you run a practice. So without further ado, here is Maribeth and Danielle from Expanded Practice. Well, hey, Maribeth and Danielle, welcome to the show. How are y'all? Oh, thank you. We're so glad to be here. We're doing great. Good. Yeah, I'm, so much. <laughs> I'm excited to get into the to the topic about mentorship and, and how y'all have decided to do it with y'all's company. But before we get too far into that, um, why don't we start with Maribeth, you and then Danielle, tell us a little bit about yourselves, um, your experience, what brought you to do and what you're doing now with Expanded Practice. Okay. Um, I'm actually not a therapist at all. I'm, I, my job has never had anything to do with the medical field, which Ooh, is really outsider. amazing <laughs> this is what I'm doing. Um, by trade, I've always been in the arts, uh, a painter, a musician, a singer here in Nashville, Tennessee. And, um, and in 2012, my 18 year old daughter had a massive stroke. She oh, wow. had previously been completely healthy and um, and really the experience that I had with that is the whole reason that Danielle and I are even working together now and, and creating this work together. Um, I had quite an extraordinary experience. It was easily the most unusual and extraordinary experience I've ever had in my life when she had a stroke, but um, it really explains what is at the basis of this work. Um, at the time, both of my kids were living in Chicago. We had been empty nesters for about six months. And um, my daughter 
Sophie had just started um, school that year. And um, we got a call late one night. It was probably close to midnight that she had fallen on a treadmill. And of course, at the time I was like, oh my gosh, come on these kids. Yeah. Did my she break a bone? Like, What's going on? My, yeah. And my son had just been mugged like the month before and wound <laughs> up in the hospital. And so I, so we were both like, oh, good grief. What is it now? You know, thinking it was nothing because she had always been completely healthy. And so we, we called my son Jordan and said, Sophie's at the hospital, go see what's up. And we really didn't think it was anything, but he, um, he called us later and said, I'm here at the hospital. You know, she's looking at me. I think she knows who I am, but she's not talking mom. And it was at that moment that I thought, wait, this sounds like something serious. And so we hopped in the car and within hours we had gotten a couple of calls from neurologists um, saying that she had had a serious stroke. And I knew nothing at the time about stroke at all, zero. I didn't yeah. even know that young people could have a stroke. I didn't yeah, know it's what usually something you get later on in life, right? <laughs> exactly. And I didn't know what that meant to her life. And actually, you know, my ignorance about it wound up being one of my greatest allies at the time. But it was it was what happened next that was really so profound. Um, we were just driving in the car, heading toward her, and I was just sort of looking up the stars and thinking, I don't know what comes next. I don't know, I don't know what to expect. I don't know where she is or what's happening. And I had what only lasted for about seconds, but it seemed like sort of a daydream. Um, and it was, I was standing in my kitchen and I was looking over at the stairs that led to her room. And yeah. she said, mama bear, which is what she calls me. And when I looked at her, it was so strange. It was like, it was like a, a dream where suddenly you know all this backstory. And it was like she was saying, we plan to do this together. Do you remember? Here we go. And, you know, I'm not this kind of person that typically has experiences like this. It was, um, I don't even know what it was, but the feeling of it was the most profound well-being and love that I have ever felt in my life. Wow. It was, it was amazing. And it, it changed my brain in that moment. And so when we reached the hospital and I walked into her hospital room where she was unconscious and hooked up to everything imaginable, I should have been scared out of my mind and um, fallen apart. And instead, all I felt was that feeling of this is an adventure, we're in together, all is well, and we're just in the dicey part. And the feeling of that strange experience stayed with me for probably about a year or a year and a half. It completely dictated my response to her. So when she did regain consciousness, uh, well, luckily my husband didn't think I was going crazy. Yeah, or yeah. Denial. 
he really jumped right on with me. It was the first time I think in our lives that we both experienced uh, a circumstance in which you have really two options in front of you. Um, the abyss of, yeah. of, of fear and grief or incredible hope in which you just go, I'm going with it. You know, I'm going to believe the best thing possible. And he did go with me and um, we had pretty much an amazing experience. We were sort of impervious to medical professionals that tried to tell us really bleak things about yeah. her future. And, um, you know, over the years, I have had to practice and reproduce that feeling for myself. But it was that experience that showed me that something is different for the human experience based on what you're thinking. You don't have to just be immersed in a circumstance. You can literally um, put your mind in a certain place and feel differently about it. And it was the first time that I'd ever experienced that in my life. And when I met Danielle, sure she'll tell you about that yeah. in a minute, but that was sort of, that was our first um, experience of each other was when she became Sophie's uh, neuro PT. Oh, cool deal. That's, that's the connection there then. That is the um, connection. Yeah, that's so incredible when you're talking about like just the power of the positive psychology or whatever you want to call it. Like the brain is incredibly powerful. So before we dive way deep into this, because I want to go down that rabbit hole, Danielle, tell us a little bit about yourself. And I, I guess your paths crossed when uh, you started treating Sophie, huh? Yes, absolutely. So um, my career path started the way many PTs start. You know, I took an entry-level position in a hospital, and I had a variety of, of responsibilities there. It was primarily an outpatient orthopedic job, but I also did some acute care and some early intervention pediatrics. And after a few years, I realized that just wasn't a good fit for me. So I shifted my focus and really found my niche in outpatient neuro. And then over the course of my career, I specialized further into adult stroke rehab. And to do this, I went the neuro IFRA route and I yeah. took intensive continuing ed with them. Um, and, you know, eventually after several years of working in the hospital system, I decided to go out on my own and treat exclusively private clients, which is what I do today, along with the work that I do with Maribeth. But I think the interesting part of my story and the reason that we're here today is what was happening to me internally as my career progressed. So, you know, my technical skills, they improved exponentially with the continuing education. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, as a therapist, you know, this is important that we absolutely need to be technically skilled. But it was clear to me as I was treating these stroke patients that I was going to need more than technical skills to get the results that I believed were possible. I mean, some patients would do really well, some would progress and then get stuck and some wouldn't change much at all. And as a clinician, I always knew that my love was direct patient care. So, that really guided all my career choices. I didn't really want to go into administration. I wanted to stay because I loved that. So making a change in my patient was very important. Yeah. Um, 
and so so here I am, the therapist that wants to be as effective as I can be. And then you're working in this hospital system that is, you know, it's chaotic or at least distracting at yeah. best, you know, and we have all of these things that we have to manage. There are all these demands. You have productivity expectations. We have documentation requirements. We have insurance restrictions. We have issues in medical necessity. And then all the while, you're supposed to create that connection with your patient, show them there's value. So they come to their appointments. And then once they get there, we're pushed to produce those results, right? Faster and faster. Well, with stroke rehab, there's a lot of elements in there that just make that very difficult. With a stroke patient, you need a calm environment so they can learn. You need time for repetition. I mean, it's very difficult to show progress to prove medical necessity in the six visits that insurance company is going to get you, give exactly. you. So yeah. you put that all together and it becomes exhausting. And kind of a, yeah. <laughs> yes, and, and a recipe for burnout, which is where I was. In fact, you know, I was always thinking I was never doing enough and I considered leaving the profession altogether. So when our paths crossed, that was really where I was and I didn't know what to do. I knew something needed to change, but I, I didn't think it was to go get more continuing ed because I had tried that. So when we started having conversations, the pieces all fell into place and that's how expanded practice was born. Yeah. And I want to back up to what you said about like the need for, or the feeling of need sometimes for technical skills, right? Like I come from outpatient ortho too. So I get it like manual therapy. You need to do this, that, and the other, learn this technique. But like you said, at some point, 50% of patients get better, 50% don't. And that connection or what, you know, what that missing piece is not more technical skills. Right. And I'm assuming right. that's where y'all kind of dive into here with, with expanded practice. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So then why don't we, we kind of, let's take this road down here. So what is what is the focus of y'all's work together at Expanded Practice then? Go ahead, Daniel. Let me take it. Well, <laughs> so what we do, Expanded Practice is really an education company. So we provide education and consultation for patients, for caregivers, but the majority of our work is with therapists. And um, we educate and mentor therapists through our courses and an online mentorship program called the Do What Works Mentorship Program. So because both of our backgrounds are in neuro, we do have a strong interest in working with that neurotherapist, but really any therapist can benefit because as you're trying to do, this is all about bringing humanity into healthcare. Yeah. So any therapist can benefit, but um, our therapist education is really built on three foundational concepts that you're gonna find in the research. The first is that high levels of stress inhibit the healing process. And it, it doesn't allow the brain to take in new information in a way that it can really assimilate it, sustain it. So we focus on the difference between that and the relaxation response, which is there to restore and let you heal. The second thing is that our beliefs and our expectations strongly influence that healing process and what happens next. And then third, that our emotions are contagious and we affect one another in both negative and positive ways. 
whether you're aware of this or not, somebody is always catching something from the strongest emotion in the room. That's just science. That's just happening. So that's what our courses and our mentorship program is built on. Awesome. And is it uh, this mentorship program, I'm assuming it's like these are clinicians that are reaching directly out to you and you're working with them. Is this over like a course of time or something like that? Or the check-ins, like how does, how does that work as far as you delivering that mentorship? Well, typically we, the whole program right now is a, a year long, but it's, oh, cool it's, deal. it's broken into three segments of four months. We meet once a month and there's things, there's a few things they do uh, during the month, but really it's, it's, we meet with very small groups, like two to three people. So they really have um, time to process these concepts that we teach. And they can bring their their actual patient, you know, experience into the conversation, and um, really see what this material looks like in a practical way. And then they go away, and they can they can practice it, and they come back and they say, "This is what I experienced." You know, what? How could I do this better? Or um, what are my other options in a scenario like this? And it's really great. It's it's like a one on one. Um, sort of environment and from at least from what we hear um it really not only changes the way that they practice but they wind up having experiences where they feel like they thought they would when they chose the profession yes yeah <laughs> because they're actually connecting with people and getting into that space in people where recovery actually is determined you know we the thing that stroke will show you over time when you're when you're working on repairing the brain is it's not just a physical game and and we tend to the 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 medical system tends to look at it like it's just physical and it's not at all um the people you know th these emotions like frustration or anger or fear can really shut down a recovery process and so therapists that are trying to work with neuropatients have this sitting in front of them every day and we're given absolutely no skills in school to deal with it and we try to give them a system in which they're not getting in there trying to solve patients problems but they're trying to help people move their emotions into more positive directions and feel seen and heard and and all of those things that we know really make humans move to yeah. a new place right it's 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 not rocket science <laughs> it's really really basic stuff but in this environment nobody is really given skills or permission in many cases to use it and and to think of it as part of the healing process. And it most certainly is. Y'all yeah. are speaking my language now. I, we, we talk a lot here about the biopsychosocial model and how we got to break loose of, you know, this biomedical, this, this, this system of healthcare that looks at people basically as the sum of their symptoms, right. Or the sum of their diagnoses, as opposed to the, the unique individual that's, that's there at the center of this recovery plan, right. Or this, 
this situation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's and it's really the center of that individual that is going to be the engine of wherever it is that they're trying to get physically. Yeah. And if you don't touch that or figure that out, um, you there there's your power source right there. You know. And so if you if you if you don't know how to get in there and find that then you're you've lost your biggest piece of influence yeah well then it's kind of moving on this path then so obviously there's more than the physical there's more than the the pathophysiological processes going on you talked a little bit about hope and emotion and how you know stress can inhibit healing so just let's say for the sake of somebody that maybe has just had a stroke or is kind of coming to terms with this, they, maybe they had a stroke and they're coming out and they're looking at a long run of recovery. How important do you find in your work that hope is on the whole recovery journey? Like how important is hope? Well, I, I have always said that I think hope should be looked at like a medical necessity because, and, and I know this is maybe hard to understand if you haven't been on this side of it, but any clinician, the moment this happened to a child or a family member, a, a loved one, they would immediately understand in a different way what hope is. I think we tend to look at hope as something we can define and analyze. And really, the way I have experienced it, and my, I see it in my daughter and in other stroke patients that we deal with, it is something that naturally arises. And my belief is that it's, it is the beginning of what's next because we see, and, and research shows, people that become hopeless don't get better. Yeah. And so it is definitely not just an emotion. It's, it's something that is necessary to keep moving forward. And especially in stroke, it, the brain, one, can, um, it can keep changing indefinitely, yeah. but it does so in a very slow, methodical manner. So if you don't have a really active hope and where you can sort of temper your emotions and look at that point on the horizon and, and keep going, and if you don't have external people involved in your process that help you do that, you're probably going to get very stuck in where you are and not get very far. Um, I, we both run into people that have had a stroke that all tell the same story. I, this is inexplicable to me, but they all tell the story that they were told by a medical professional that they really only had a certain amount of time to get any visible or, or, you know, tangible recovery. Yeah. Well, this has not been our experience at all. My, my daughter is, is nine years into her recovery. She had um, global aphasia. So for years, she could not make a sentence. Years could not make a sentence. She could not read. So um, she worked and worked and worked. And now this year discovered that she really could read again. And she's read... 22 books in oh, the last cow. year, big books. And her language is improving exponentially. And so people can recover. It's just, I think, 
I think what we see in stroke recovery, the statistics are really what happens when people tell you you only have a certain window of time and then people reach that window and think, well, and they that's give up, it. yeah. And they give up. So it's sort of a self-fulfilling thing. But what we really try to do is make a new kind of therapist mindset that really helps people get these tools early on that they can change and keep changing. Yeah. Well, and the importance of, like you said, having patients have that hope and not give up. Like Danielle, in your experience, like what's the therapist or the clinician's role in either supporting or fostering that? And, and to what extent do you have um, an impact or influence on your patient's kind of view of their or expectations for, for treatment? I'm so glad you asked. It's a great question and you have a huge impact because um, first of all, as a clinician, this is the way I look at hope. I heard it defined this way and I think this is great. Hope is simply the belief that things can change and your actions make a difference. And I think we can all agree as therapists that believing that, that a patient's actions make a difference is important. If they don't think what they do matters, they're not going to get better. So if a, if a patient says to me, um, you know, am I going to play tennis again? I don't necessarily have to believe that they're going to play tennis. Maybe that's hard for me to grasp. You know, maybe I've never seen anybody with your deficits go that far, yeah. but I can convey hope in other ways because I know as long as you still try, you know that your actions are going to make a difference, that you're going to keep moving forward. And I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's coming down your path. But that patient is looking at me as the expert. They've never had a stroke before. They don't know what's happening. So the way I convey information is going to have a huge impact on how they believe what they see themselves, You know how they believe their recovery is going to go, how they see themselves. I have an enormous uh, bit of influence there. And I want to use it all to that patient's advantage. So that's one thing that we encourage our therapists to do is find ways to stretch yourself. What do I know is true for this patient? And if you don't know, don't limit them. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a big, yeah. You can either turn them on or you can turn them off. Right. Right. <laughs> um, well, and also it's, it's really helpful for people to understand that, you know, when you get someone standing right in front of you saying, how long is this going to take? Or what are my odds <laughs> to convey hope? Like Danielle was saying, you don't have to, you don't have to specifically answer that question because the honest answer is, I don't know. Um, that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, there are, I can show you what the statistics are, but there are also a whole lot of anomalies of people that have done vastly different things than what the majority of people do. And you may be one of those. All I know is if you keep working, you'll keep changing. That is a statement that allows that person to create the best story for their own potential for recovery that they can, because research has also shown that your beliefs and expectations, whatever that story is you have about what you think is going to happen is highly indicative of what actually happens. Yeah. So, you know, you always want to be 
um, giving them the most honest and supportive information for them to make that best story. Because, you know, the thing that I think we're a little bit confused about is the truth. If you're, if you're just wanting to be accurate as a medical professional, the truth is not a statistic of what happened to someone else. And that's probably going to be your future that unless you have a crystal ball, that's not the truth. Like we were told really early on by like one of the first things we were told was your daughter had a massive stroke. She might walk again, but it will, it will be with a cane. Well, she walks beautifully and she, uh, she still wears, uh, an assistive device part-time on her leg and she's working her way out of that. She's, she's going to walk great. And so luckily we did not take that information to heart and decide that was going to be her future. We, we said the sky's the limit. And I think that's, that's notable. That's, that makes a difference in recovery. Yeah. What did, I know you said that you, you were, you know, filled with this feeling of hope and, and you looked at it as almost like this is a challenge. We're going to rise to meet it. Um, how about your daughter? Did she require from either Danielle or whoever her OT was? Like, was there a lot of, um, not to say coaching, but encouragement to the patient? Like this is possible. You're going to continue healing or was she kind of gung ho too? I'm going to take this on. (laughs) Uh, well, which day are are you referring to? (laughs) Which moment are you referring to? Because really, that is exactly what the stroke journey is. It is a roller coaster. Series, of, huh? Yes, of I can do this. I'm I'm in it, and then the at the end of the day, you're like, oh my god, this is taking way too long. I don't think I'm ever going to make it. This is so much harder than I think I have in me. Luckily, she's a tenacious spirit, but boy, you know, that's part of the inspiration for Danielle's and my work together is that therapist that maybe thinks their job is only physical is in this prime spot to not just be a guide and a cheerleader and a coach, but just somebody that is there saying, I see you, you're working hard, this is going to pay off keep going. I'm here for you. It, it really does take that something like recovering from a, a serious brain injury. It isn't just the physical thing we think it goes into those areas of the spirit and it takes courage, bravery, tenacity, grit, all of these things, and if and if those things are not supported by the outside, by external people, it just becomes an overwhelming journey. You really do need support from all sides, and everybody um, ideally is on the same page with that. Yeah, and uh, you can get different results. Um, I would just like to say that watching Maribeth with Sophie, it became obvious that Maribeth's mindset and her positive expectations were having a dramatic effect on Sophie. And it wasn't just something you could see, it was something you could feel. And that's when I really realized how our mere presence and our energy 
can affect another person. And so when I watched that, when I watched their interaction, you know, I had always been a kind and compassionate therapist, but I wanted to take it up a level. I wanted to know how do I cultivate a mindset like Maribeth has about Sophie because she loves her? How can I cultivate something similar in relation to my patients? You know, a mindset of appreciation that they could feel when they were with me because how we feel, yeah. you know, affects how we heal. And that was important. So all of that's all wrapped up there. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's great. And I wanted to back up a little bit because you, you mentioned this in passing, Maribeth, but I know as a clinician who's been, you know, in and out of, of the hospitals as well and have, have taught students, like one of the biggest um, fears or intimidation factors is that you'll get that patient that has global aphasia and you were like, oh yeah, my daughter had aphasia, but now she's reading. So um, we're going to dive into this a little bit. So what specifically about your daughter's global aphasia, what did that show you about um, communication, both between you and her and maybe the, the clinician or the therapist in her? And maybe Danielle, you can chime in too about how, how you navigate treating and, and working with a patient who does have a significant communication challenge. Well, there is nothing like living with a person that has aphasia to open your eyes to all the different facets of us. You know, I had never contemplated this before, but it wasn't until suddenly there was my daughter looking at me, but she had no ability to use language. Yeah. Um, she had always been incredibly articulate and talkative. And, and yet you see, she's thinking she's, she's, quick. Uh, she would get nuancey things, even when she couldn't understand language. So very quickly, you realize that one, thoughts have nothing to do with language. And, and people's imagination has nothing to do with language. In fact, when you really get down to it, language is just a tool that we use to express all of these other things. So someone that has aphasia, um, they really have a very hard go of it out in the world because when you can't talk, people look at you and they assume all sorts of things about you. They assume that you, um, you, are, not, you are also not able to think. And if you have processing some processing issues, like a lot of people with stroke do, they assume that that means that you can't do other things. And really, you just need a minute. Yeah. You, you, need, you need to be able to sort out all of these things. The most amazing thing was I noticed in the hospital, so uh, medical professionals would come through, neurologists, that they study the brain. They could tell you textbook what global aphasia is, right? But they would come in and they would be asking questions to try to assess what she was able to do, what she was able to move. And they would bark the question at her really quickly and loudly. And she would just look at them. And I, cause I know her, I knew that she was just trying to make sense of the words because yeah. that's what aphasia is. But before she could even try to form a word or follow a command, they would go, nope, 
doesn't have that, and they would move to the next one. And I wanted to go, wait, I, I thought you yeah, knew what some time. Was. <laughs> give them some time, quit being so loud, quit saying it over and over in their face, watch your energy, like back up. It's, these are subtle things, but um, the thing that came to me most just in the bigger picture was we communicate largely, in fact, mostly in nonverbal ways. Language is just this small little way that we communicate. And so when Danielle and I really started talking about this and working together, we thought, wow, this is what therapists need to know is you are communicating almost completely on a nonverbal level with your patient. Why don't you learn that? Why, why don't you go in there and figure out what it is you're saying? Because what you're saying in that nonverbal language are all the things you think, you believe, you feel, you're telling the 100% truth um, on all of those things. And maybe don't even, you, you say something different and you think that that's what they're hearing. That's not what they're hearing. They're hearing what you're communicating nonverbally. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And uh, and Danielle, let's circle back to you then. C working with somebody who who might have these communication needs, um, what do you find are are necessary and important to keep in mind as a clinician? Maybe working with somebody who's got aphasia. Yeah, well, well, I just second everything Mirabeth said. I mean, this is where the, the stuff that we talk about really comes into play big time because people who are aphasic cannot use language. So um, this nonverbal communication is key. Say less. I, I actually very much enjoy aphasic patients because it teaches me what's necessary and what I can leave out. So, you know, saying fewer words, allowing much more time for things, using your energy and your presence. Um, when I first met Sophie, I came up to her, I smiled and I winked at her. Now, I don't even remember doing that, but she told me later that when I did that on the first day, she knew that everything was going to be okay. I didn't learn at school when you come to a phasic patient, you need to smile and wink at them. But it was the whole uh, presence that I conveyed to her that everything was going to be okay, just through my body language, by the way I was standing, the way I looked at her, and how I did speak to her, but slowly and in kind, in a kind manner. So I think um, if if you do cultivate this mindset of appreciation and you start to look at these patients in a way where you think, what must this be like for them? You know, what you become more empathetic and this stuff just happens naturally. If you were thinking, if this were the person I love the most sitting here, how would I deal with them? What would I, what would I want them to feel right now? And and then you you don't overwhelm them overwhelm them because you notice those signs you notice that they're not quite with you you know to pause yeah. so i think that it starts with you if your mindset is in such a way what follows next just naturally is more conducive to a good session with them and can i throw one one thing in there about language um you know what when we work with therapists, what we really try to get them to understand is the experience of things. Like I know they they probably all learn 
um, you know, the therapeutic use of self and and empathy and all of these all of these things that we know the name of it, but that's just language. Um, maybe you can define it. Maybe you can describe it. Maybe you can talk about it with a colleague. But do you know what it feels like? Do you know what it looks like when you have successfully connected with a patient? Do you know how they change visually to your, to your eyes? Do you know how to recognize that? Do you know what it feels like when they have shifted their emotion to something more positive? So we really get into those things that are about what those terms, those language terms actually are and feel like. So when they go to work, they're not just cognitive about these things. It's now on an experiential level. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Um, definitely way outside my depth as far as clinical, uh, clinical skills, but I'm tracking along and it's, it, <laughs> it makes a whole <laughs> lot of sense. Um, kind of near in the end here, Danielle specifically is somebody that does a whole lot of work with neuro and specifically with strokes, what sort of, um, I guess for lack of a better term, better outcomes do we really think are possible for, for folks that, like you said, maybe have been told by their doctors, if you don't get, uh, you know, this kind of gain within a year, that's kind of what you can tap out at. What sort of better outcomes can we expect specifically in stroke rehab? Well, you know, therapists are very outcome oriented and that's not a negative thing. We want to be able to produce outcomes, but however, sometimes I think we get so focused on checking that box that we yeah. miss something that could make that outcome a little bit better. So I think if we work to improve our awareness of what's going on emotionally with our patients and our awareness of how we're feeling when we treat, the possibilities can really expand. So let me just give you an example from early on in my career. Okay, when I first started an outpatient neuro, I had this gentleman who was severely affected by a stroke, hemiparetic, visual perceptual deficits, a lot of things. And I was attempting to do a sit to stand transfer from his wheelchair. And this man would not lean forward for love nor money. <laughs> so I physically had to basically just pull him forward and lift him up. So my outcome was sit to stand with max assist. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The next session, I'm doing the same thing. And his wife is watching from across the room. And she walks over and she says, hey, Joe, stand up. And he paused. He turned and he looked at her. She said, come on, stand up. And the man stood up with an assist. Now, <laughs> his fear was limiting his ability to move forward. But I was so sure in my clinical brain that it was this visual perceptual deficit yeah. and that I needed to intervene that I didn't notice that. I wasn't aware of it and I didn't know how to address it. So there are simple things we can intentionally implement that have a big difference on how that patient responds, you know, and then the outcome they get. And if we do this enough, we're gonna realize oh, it's not this thing that the stroke has caused, it's a problem. It's that they're petrified or they're completely unmotivated. Um, I think you also need to know, again, be highly aware that your emotions are contagious and that's impacting their outcomes. Um, another example from my practice, I had this woman, I was working on standing balance with her. 
and it was very challenging. And we sat to rest and she turned and looked at me and said, you know, when I start to get nervous, I just look in your eyes because your eyes make me feel calm. Wow. Yeah. Now I, that happened authentically. I was not thinking I'm going to look in her eyes and I'm going to make <laughs> feel calm. No, you know, she, she was calm because I was calm. Contrast that to if I had been stressed out about one thing or another. So now she's standing and I'm stressed. So instead of having calm to tap into, she has stress. Yeah, stress is contagious. And yeah. <laughs> now it's, yes, now it's amplified. Now you have a patient who's standing, but it's fearful and anxious. And you can't build when they're fearful and anxious. So these, these concepts, which seem like, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's just a thing that I do on the side, you know, like, no, these are things that you infuse into your session. And it really makes a big difference on how that patient performs and what they believe about themselves. And those beliefs lead to more good outcomes. So uh, I think that really the possibilities are far beyond what we can even know right now because so many patients go through the rehab process and they're, they're scared the entire time. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, um, wrapping up here, I guess, where can people learn more about expanded practice and what kind of programs you offer? I know you mentioned the mentorship program. Is there, is there anything else that you do with folks? Uh, Yes, we have a class coming up actually that's that's brand new. Um, it will be a virtual class um, that we'll offer on our, our website, expanded, expandedpractice.com. And um, it's called How to Communicate with the Healing Brain Like an Expert. And it will be packed full of these kind of practical things, not just ideas, but actually this is this is how you talk to a healing brain and really so many therapists no matter what their specialty is you're always working with the brain aren't you because you're yeah. working with a human being and that's where things are happening so um, it's going to be an incredible class um, you can find information for that on our website and also um, we're on instagram as well and we have lots of you know daily um, little tidbits of things that therapists can use. Um, so those are two good places to find us. Awesome. Great. Um, well, Danielle, Mayor Beth, thanks so much for taking the time and, uh, we'll link to everything in the show notes so people can go and find you and connect with you and y'all can keep doing the great work. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We loved being with you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mayor Beth and Danielle from Expanded Practice. Like I told you, that story kind of blows me away <laughs> every time I go back and listen to it and, and think about, you know, I'm a father myself and having a child have a, have a stroke, like a really life-changing event like that at a really young age when they're almost at the cusp of having all their life ahead of them, so to speak. Um, it was just a, a challenge in and of itself. And I don't know if very many people would handle it the way Maribeth did. And I think that's one of the things that makes her unique as an individual. And then the way Danielle was able to kind of rise to the challenge and meet her her daughter and kind of help bring about some of these changes is, is 
pretty interesting in and of itself as well. So hopefully, um, hopefully you found that conversation both insightful and entertaining. You can learn more about them at expandedpractice.com. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. If you like what we're doing here at the show, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. It helps people learn about the show, helps people hear about us. We were just uh, featured in Audio Bursts for a couple of their uh, playlists, which is pretty cool, getting the word out. Um, you can also head on over to www.betteroutcomes.show and you can sign up there to receive the latest episodes sent directly to your inbox along with whatever show notes and links we have. Um, a lot of our guests, we end up sourcing through LinkedIn and, and most of them are pretty open to, to connecting and answering questions and, and all of that stuff as well. So you can find their information and the information about their organizations in the show notes on the website. And if you happen to be a clinic owner or an administrator and you want to develop a system that helps you attract, engage, retain um, more patients, then you need to check out the Ultimate Patient Experience Blueprint. Like I say, happy, satisfied patients are the lifeblood of any practice, clinic, or health system. It's what ensures patients show up for their appointments, that they're engaged during treatment, and even that they refer their friends, acquaintances, neighbors, dog walkers, you name it back to your clinic. But achieving this type of positive patient relationship building takes some planning, some work, some intentionality. So what we've done is we've put together our program called the Ultimate Patient Experience Blueprint. We call it Mastering the Patient Relationship Cycle. And we take you through a few phases, which ends up helping you develop a system that both um, helps you communicate to your prospective patients and to your current patients in a way that engages them, um, that builds a strong relationship with them. We build processes with you to help you convert more phone calls to actual paid evaluations or plans of care. And then we develop a framework for you that we call the value framework that helps you um, basically develop your marketing, your messaging strategy in a way that helps you lead with value. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can head on over to rehabupracticesolutions.com slash UPE. That's rehab, the letter U, practicesolutions.com slash UPE. Or you can shoot us an email at support at rehabupracticesolutions.com and we can set up a time to chat learn more a little bit about your clinic, your situation, and uh, how this might be a benefit to you. All right, guys, that's all I've got for now. Until the next time, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to The Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.